I hope that uh, you'll have some opportunity to get to know why he does a great work and within the PCA large and uh, is a very dear brother. Having a missions conference, I believe, is one of those emphases that needs to be ongoing. It, in some ways, the only downside to have such a conference is that it, it gives the appearance as if the church's emphasis towards missions is only at one particular season. But we all recognize that it's critical that it's ongoing, that we are, as some would refer to, our missional always. That means that as a church, we are thinking about it, we're looking for ways to uh, spread the gospel, to share Christ with others uh, as a church at large, as individuals, as I mentioned, within the workplace, there's great opportunities there. And so when we think about uh, this kind of an emphasis, we think about going out and, and hearing the call that God gives each of us to be concerned about our neighbors and those within our community and those within our state and country and within the world. And that's, that's a heavy responsibility. But that's what it means for us to, to be under uh, the Lordship of Christ. And so, therefore, we think about going out. And then the other thing about missions sometimes we emphasize is, is dying to self. And so when we think about, especially those who are called into missions, we think about people who have this unusual uh, ability, perhaps, uh, to, to put away all the things that maybe they thought were important and to go to seminary or go into some type of training and, and then uh, take their family if they're married and have children and go on the other side of the world. And that takes an enormous amount of energy to raise the funds and to uh, learn a different language and a different culture and all those things. And so we talk about dying to self. It's, it's not easy. Uh, and then we might think of some other aspects of missions. But one of the things that I find often we don't talk about in such a conference as this is the relationship that missions has to the church and specifically a healthy church. And I believe that it's critical that we spend a little bit of time uh, looking at how important it is to have a healthy church that is able to be missional, is able to uh, fulfill the Great Commission. Because if the church isn't healthy, there is no Great Commission. And over the years, and having been in the pastorate, I don't know, how old am I? Well, it doesn't matter. But whatever the, whatever the years have been, uh, that uh, I often find that churches that especially are not healthy have absolutely no outreach, no mission, no emphasis at all towards the Great Commission. Why? Because they can't afford it. So if you will, turn with me to the book of Philippians. This isn't, you don't have this uh, printed anywhere in your bulletin. And I'm going to be reading from the NIV. I hope you don't need a translation for that. You probably use the ESV maybe, which is perfectly, which is great, which is very good. It's just that Historically, I've used this. So I'm going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2 this morning, verses 1 through 11, but I'm going to be sneaking in to the next section as well. But I'm going to just read for now verses 1 through 11 of Second Philippians chapter 2. And then if you will, before we read this, why don't we pray just for a moment and ask God to work in our lives. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word, for helping us understand what it is that you're doing, you, you make it clear to us. I pray that I would not be confusing somehow. I ask that your word would pierce our hearts, would transform our thinking, that we would honor you in everything we do and say. And uh, so we need your spirit to work in our lives now. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 2. 
if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him in the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. I suspect that all of you here have found that the reason why the church is so attractive and the reason why you've come to worship, and maybe this is your first time at the Grace here, maybe it's not, maybe you've been here for many years, but the reason why you come is because it's a perfect place to be. People always act just like you would expect them to. Your pastor and the leadership, they're always ahead of you in regards to sensing your needs, and you always find it to be a warm and inviting place, and there's never any conflict, there's never any kind of division. It's just like, it's, it's like heaven on earth, and that's why we all come here. And we say, I don't know, where, where are you from, boy? <laughs> what are you talking about? We would like to say that, and I think that there is a sense where we would even like to believe that, but the reality is a little bit different. And so the, the way in which we approach church is a little bit different, and, and maybe, uh, for example, this little story in my own life might, might be something you can relate to. When I was maybe seven or eight, I suspect, I grew up in this little church, not terribly far from here, maybe an hour or so. It's an area called Granite. And uh, there was this little uh, country church that we attended. We always went there without question. And at Christmas, which they would celebrate, of course, we would have Santa Claus come to Sunday school as a way of, you know, remembering the season. And, and uh, he would give out a box of candy. Every, every year was the same. So you always look forward to this occasion and sometimes it was these nice cream-filled chocolates. But other times they were these really hard candies. And so my brother and I, the one that's the pastor in Baltimore, we were sitting about like, where, what's your name, my ass? Okay, that's all right. You don't have to tell me. But about where, about where she is. And, and we made the mistake of of enjoying the gift that we had gotten there at the Sunday school hour in the worship. Now, this is a much smaller, maybe half the size of this church, if even that big. And the floors were hard and the pews were hard. And so anything you did made lots of noise. So in the process of opening up the box, and I don't remember if it was my brother Craig, it probably was him, but I was sitting there along with him. The, the entire contents of that box emptied on the hardwood floor as, as the elder preacher was preaching, and these hard candies were, acted like marbles, 
just bouncing all over the floor right in front of this man as he's preaching. Of course, he was a very gracious man. So he stops the sermon and in anger, he says, you boys, you pick that up right now. So we, we did. And obviously we were embarrassed and we, I admit, we should not have been indulging in the box of candies during the sermon, right? But we did. So you kind of think, well, you know, it's, it's over, but it wasn't. And in this little church where you've got like a center aisle and it's really small, there's a little foyer and the foyer is about as big as the area where I'm standing, right? It's not, you don't, in other words, you're not going to get out easily. But as a kid, you think you can get around the people that are greeting the pastor and telling him how good the sermon was. And so as I'm approaching the foyer and I'm coming around, he sees me. And next thing I know, the hand of God has taken my my shoulders, and now I'm being shaken like this. You will never do that in my church again, son. Out you go, kind of a thing. So with that benediction, I left. <laughs> and obviously, I haven't forgotten it. Now, again, it, it, to be honest, I mean, the next Sunday, if you thought I wasn't going to go to church, I was going to be there, and in time, you... You know, you, you get over those kinds of things to a degree, right? But I tend to think that a lot of us have had some kind of experience like that where somehow, instead of the church being a loving and caring and inviting place, we find it to be kind of the opposite, difficult. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here in Philippians. He's, he's not talking to the body of Christ that is perfect and always has their act together and everybody is loving and encouraging and and is caring and they, they just can't do enough for one another. He's talking here to believers that have found it to be in the church offensive. Believers who have found in the church to be difficult, to be trying. And in some cases, they're part of the problem as well. And maybe they're not willing to admit it. And so I believe that what Paul is, in essence, instructing the church and us today is to reconsider our view of the church and ask this basic and fundamental question, do I love well the bride of Christ? Now, if, you had, if I had given you the sermon title, it would have been, do you love well the wife of another? Now, when, normally when I use that title, it's like, oh, what are you talking about here, you know? But you understand what I mean. If we're the bride of Christ, we're the bride, we're, you are the bride of another. You're the wife of another, in essence. And it's not me, it's not you, it's Christ. And the question is, do I love the church really well? And I don't believe that we can ever have any kind of real witness within the world unless we're loving well the Bride of Christ, the Church. Unless those who go out from here have this sense that they are being loved well, and it's not an easy thing to do. Now, you may or may not have any understanding of the Book of Philippians and its background, but we believe, according to uh, historical records, that Paul was the one who, who penned this book under the influence of the Holy Spirit, uh, probably from prison, 
It was somewhere maybe around the early uh, 60s, that is AD 60. So it was, you know, not quite, but 2,000 years ago was a long time. Uh, he is writing to those who are most likely Roman citizens in a Roman city that was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. The church was thought to be made up of largely Gentiles as opposed to Jews. And so as you think about what Paul is, is saying here, you, you have a little bit of a sense of maybe the context, although I realize it's not always clear. But again, the question is, what does it mean for us to love well the bride of Christ? And there's three basic things that I want to bring to your attention. The first is to love the conflict. Now, I know that sounds odd, to love the conflict. Yes, to love the conflict. Uh, clearly, there was conflict in church. Paul is not writing chapter 2 to a group of people who have this perfect utopia. He's writing to people that are, are in conflict. And so you'll notice in, in verse 2, the issue of the divisions, the lack of unity. Verse, uh, in the same verse, the, the lack of love. The issue in verse 3 of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Those are all very devastating uh, dynamics to either be withholding or to be engaged in. But if you look at the, if you look at Acts 16, where you find the details of how this church was established, you'll see that Paul was on a mission trip. He had received this call, the Macedonian call. He goes into Philippi. There's no synagogue for them to go to first. So they go to a place of prayer. Lydia, this dealer of purple, she comes to Christ. Her family is, along with her family, she's, they are baptized. This is all happening fairly quickly. He is regularly, with, along with Silas, going through the streets and spending time with people preaching the gospel. And next thing you know, there's a spiritual warfare going on. And there's this, this girl who is able to prophesy and, and she's bugging them day after day and yeah, we see the spirit work within that circumstances. That causes them real hardship because now they're thrown into prison because of the disturbance that they had. So the guys who are brought there for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel are now in prison. But while they're in prison, the gospel is being proclaimed. And all those in prison are hearing these guys worshiping God. And then God does something very different. There's a, heart, there's a, there's a earthquake that takes place. And it appears to the jailer that everyone has been freed because of the earthquake. But they weren't. They, they remained there. And through that, the jailer comes to Christ. And his family, along with him, is, are baptized. And this thing is just taking place like wildfire. God is moving in their midst. And so now as Paul is writing to these people who have come to Christ through very interesting and dynamic circumstances... He's writing to people who need to love the conflict. They're business people, mothers, sisters and brothers, jailers, those in the correction department, children, different ages, different education background, different social status. The list goes on and on and on. The gift of conflict for the church is important to recognize. I know it sounds odd, but the reason is that, number one, the tension that is there, that often exists within the church, is a sign that we are really different. The Philippian jailer, the dealer in purple, Lydia, etc., they're all different. God has made us different. 
God has given us his image where we, we, we are made in a very unique way. And that's wonderful. It needs to be celebrated. But so often, it does create tension. But when the tension is there, you need to sit back and ask the question. Are you, in essence, celebrating the differences within the body of Christ and the fact that we need those differences if we're going to be true to the Great Commission? Because the world in which we live in is very different. I've had the privilege recently of spending time with a uh, with a, a, a couple that are engaged. They're not married. And what's somewhat fascinating to me is the way the prospective husband has come to Christ. Just several weeks ago, he flew from Syria. He got out of Syria, went uh, through Jordan, and came to the United States. And because they're engaged, he was able to get a visa to come here. I sat down with him just the other week, and he told me how he came to Christ. He came to Christ through the scout that he's now engaged to, because when he initially asked her to marry him, she said, I can't marry you. And I can't continue the relationship because I am a Christian. And you have not made a profession of faith. You, you don't know Christ. And I, I cannot, I can't do that. And so he was just dumbfounded. So you can picture this, this, this Syrian who is a Muslim in Damascus, who has developed this relationship with this gal. He falls in love. He wants to marry her. He goes to her. He, he proposes. She says, no, I can't marry you because of Christ. She eventually leaves. He's left there thinking, what is this all about? I, I, don't, I, know, I don't understand this. He begins to then look into the Bible and studying the scriptures and studying the scriptures and studying and through his own study, he says, this is what I want. Now, you know, you might say, oh, no, he really just wants the girl. But... She's gone, you know, she's not there. He comes to Christ. He begins to seek out people there in Damascus. Now think about this biblically. He's in Damascus. This country now that is literally torn apart. You read about Syria every day because of the revolution. He was one of those in the streets protesting. He was one of those who was arrested and beaten up and then eventually let go. And somehow he was able to get out of his country. He's really different. He thinks differently. When we spend time together and we talk about his life and the scriptures and all these things, he's really different. He's going to look at life different. And those differences could create all kinds of conflict. And I'm telling you now, they're going to create all kinds of issues within their marriage without question. But they need to be celebrated. We need to pause and ask, what is God doing in this? And so I, I believe that one of the dynamics of of, of understanding what it means for us to love well the wife of another is to see what God is doing and not to be so disturbed and not to be so self-centered with it. Now, secondly, our time is running by quickly here. We need to redefine our relationships. And here's what I mean. One is clearly from this passage, we have to abstain from things. So he says to us specifically, you know, don't be this way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. You can't be self you can't be self-oriented in the body of Christ if it's going to work. You you can't uh you can't be uh someone who 
is so involved with themselves that it's nothing more than vain conceit. You see that again uh, in verses 3. He says, you, you can't look at only your own interests. So on the one side, you need to realize that there's going to be a, a direction within your life that you're going to have to say no to. And it's going to be the natural direction. I have that natural tendency, so do you. But what he does say is, no, this is what you need to be. You need to be, he says, look at it. He says, you need to be other-oriented. Each of you should look not only to, to his own interests, nothing wrong with that, but also to the interests of others. What does it mean for you to be self or to be oriented towards someone who is in a whole different socioeconomic realm than you are, that is older than you are, that is very young and thinks of, of life differently than you are, that's a, of a different gender? Yeah, the list goes on and on. What does it look like for you to be intentional about being concerned for them and sharing your concern and expressing your concern for them? And to a great extent, we don't have that. And then he says this in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That's very difficult for us. What does that mean? Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He's given us the gospel here. He's saying you're to be like Christ. That's hard. I'm not God in the flesh. How can I possibly do that? But that's what he's instructing us to do. He's, in, he's, in, he's saying, do you... Do you think about what your Savior has done for his bride? Some time ago I was reading, uh, it's a book called Rescuers, and it talks about the German occupation during the period of World War II in, in Poland and how the Jews were forced to live in Warsaw in these specific ghettos. Some of you may be aware of this. This is like like 1942-43 uh, era. And uh, this particular book is speaking about just how horrible it was and how these Jews were being treated. And in this one place where the, the Germans were determined to empty the ghettos and place the people either in concentration camps, which typically meant that they were death camps, they, uh, the, the, the Jews themselves began to resist. And the Germans finally came in and said, we're going to clean house and we're going to destroy everybody, any, anything that's left here. And so it, it gives us, this book gives us a little bit of an insight to what happened. I'm going to just read it to you, if I may. It says, then came Easter Sunday, mass over. The holiday crowds poured out into the sun-drenched streets, hearts filled with Christian love. People went to look at the new unprecedented attraction that lay halfway across the city. So the rest of the Poles in Warsaw are coming to this one particular area of this ghetto, and they're just, it's, it's Easter, so they want to see what's going on. On the other side of the ghetto wall, where Christ's Jewish brethren suffered a new and terrible Calvary, not by crucifixion, but by fire, what unique spectacle bemused the crowd stared at the hanging curtains of flame, listened to the roar of the conflagration, and they whispered to one another, but the Jews, they're being roasted alive. And there was awe and relief that none, that not they, but the others had attracted the fury of the vengeance of the conqueror. There was also satisfaction. Batteries of, our, of our artillery had set up in this one street were shelling objectives in the ghetto from there. The explosions of grenades and dynamite could be heard as well as Jews scrambled from their hiding places. 
Pain-crazed figures leap from balconies and windows to smash on the streets below. From time to time, a living torch would crouch on a window sill for one unbearably long moment before flashing like a comet through the air. And when such figures caught on some obstruction and hung there suspended in agony, the spectators were quick to attract the attention of the German riflemen. Hey, look, over there. No, over there. And love of neatness and efficiency were appeased by a well-placed shot. The flaming comet was made to complete its trajectory, and the crowd cheered. Can you imagine what it would be like to be the object of the crowd cheering as you've been set on fire and burned, in essence? It's just a horrible, horrible picture of what took place, in a sense, not that long ago in Europe. And I, I, I give you that illustration because that's exactly what Christ went through. As he was being beaten and flogged and nailed to a cross, people, the, the crowds, in essence, were cheering. This is great. Isn't this wonderful? And Jesus did that and went through that kind of humiliation and went through that kind of pain because he loves his church and he wants to bless her. And so Paul is saying here, look, you who are part of a church that often is characterized by disunity, disharmony, tensions, etc., you need to love her well. In a sense, you need to appreciate the conflicts that are there in an appropriate way. You need to redefine your relationship with the church according to what Paul is giving us here, and especially according to the gospel, according to what Christ has done. We need to have the same attitude towards the bride of Christ as he did. But then thirdly, and I've only mentioned this, is that you don't do this because you have the willpower or because you have the ability, or because someone has said you need to do this, or because even Paul says it, you need to do it out of the gospel. And if you look at the very first section of this passage that we've read, you'll note that Paul here is saying, look, you have if you have any encouragement from being united Christ, that conditional phrase is not one that says, well, maybe you have or maybe you don't. He's saying, no, this is something, he's making a statement of fact. You have been united with Christ. You have been comforted from his love. You have the fellowship with the Spirit and you've received his tenderness and compassion. You have been a recipient of the gospel, of someone's prayer, who have been praying for you that you would come to Christ. You are the result of a missionary emphasis. You have experienced the gospel, and it is through that gospel that you will stand back and re-examine your attitude and your mindset towards the church. And instead of just tolerating her or putting up with her, you'll love her well because of not only the example of Christ, but because Christ, through his gospel, gives you the ability to love her well. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this time together, for giving us your word. Thank you for your great commission. We need it. And yet, Father, we know that we need a strong church, a healthy church, in order to fulfill it. 
We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.